You are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit Win, Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global marketing lead at Win by night and product manager and university level faculty by day. Hello and welcome back to the Win-Win Podcast Special Series where we celebrate the Win Women in Innovation five-year anniversary by bringing on the women behind the organization. So far, I have had the opportunity to speak to Alfia Ilicheva, one of the Win co-founders, so make sure you check out that episode if you haven't already. And today, I sit down to talk to Maria Petarajan, who is a friend and mentor of mine in many capacities, as well as the other half of the Win co-founder team. This month at Win, one of the key themes we are celebrating is sponsorship and what it means to put your own reputation on the line and use your social and professional capital to further someone along within an organization by giving them that opportunity. Maria perfectly exemplifies this for many people she meets and supports, but she personally encouraged me to apply for my role at City, where I currently work. Through my recruitment process, she advocated for me as she spent the last two and a half years at City before her current role as head of product management at a B-series startup, Trust and Will. I loved how honestly and authentically Maria evaluates her own trajectory as well as Wynn's trajectory. We get into some of the principles of what it means to establish a community and what fueled her to start Win and scale it to where it is. I could go on and on about the magic that Maria is, but I will let you find out for yourself through today's episode, so let's get into it. Maria, hello. I'm so excited to welcome you as my second guest on the mini-series in honor of celebrating Wynn's five-year anniversary. As you know, we had Alfia come on previously, and we have Aubrey, our executive director, joining us on the podcast shortly, too. Today, I'm excited to hear all about your side of the co-founder story, so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so you and I actually met when I was getting my master's, and I started as a fellow at Wynn. You may or may not know this, but a big part of the reason I got my master's was because I kept on applying for innovation roles after my undergrad degree, and it was literally one rejector after another, and so I really attribute the combination of my master's and win as what helped get me in the door. So I guess the first question I have for you is how you got your foot into the innovation space and what approach did you go about it? I started out my undergrad studying anthropology and really trying to understand humans and culture. And unknowingly, this became the foundation for my entire career. I also, in that sense, perhaps unusually, I also did a master's in innovation management, which was one of the very first degrees in the world to be created, uh, specifically with the goal to grow the next generation of multidisciplinary talent that can take any business challenge, any design challenge and solve it. And, and that really propelled me very quickly and very efficiently into the world of innovation consulting. I started out my career working very much in org design and digital transformation, coaching executive teams, coaching managerial teams, creating innovation processes, setting up innovation metrics, implementing them in organizations. 
And it was the type of work that felt very intangible, but had very long, durable results on the organizations and the teams that we worked with. After doing that for a while, I had the urge to actually build things tangibly. And so I shifted gears and joined a product and service design firm called Fahrenheit 212. I actually moved for Fahrenheit to New York City uh, from Europe and spent about four, five years there. Did a ton of trad very traditional innovation work. Over time, it became very clear to me that while the work was exciting and we got to travel the world and solve really complex, exciting business challenges, I, I wanted to have a full ownership over my innovation babies. And so I knew that my next natural step would be to join a company in-house. And because I had so much love for financial services uh, over my career as a consultant, those were projects that I really enjoyed. It just became a no-brainer to join Citibank. And there, I really got to see what it really takes to bring new ideas to market in a huge ecosystem of relationships and stakeholders and competing priorities and really figuring out how do you do this in a in a behemoth like Citibank and that was great fun um, I got to learn a ton and bring me along with you and bring you <laughs> along with me <laughs> exactly so happy that I managed to do that and then after a while it started to feel like I can probably have more impact if I join a smaller team with an earlier stage product that I can really scale and mature and uh, grab a really big chunk of market because of all the experiences that I've accumulated over the years as a consultant as an, uh, and also as an in-house product and strategy. I mean, it's a huge switch from this large Fortune 500 companies with where every time you take a breath, you need approvals and regulators to sign off on it, to now heading up product management at the startup that you mentioned, uh, Trust and Will. So what are you bringing from City to Trust and Will, and what are you most excited about in this new trajectory? Well, there's a lot that I'm excited about, <laughs> um, but a few things that are very top of mind. Startups are really great at running fast, and there's a, a big tug of war between running fast and doing things for the long term. So oftentimes it's easier to run fast and just like do things quickly without overthinking, overanalyzing, overstructuring. And that's awesome. But at some point, once your team grows to a certain number, and at Trust and Will, we're at about 40 people. You just need a little bit more of a structure, a little bit more of a articulated product vision and how that product vision translates into strategic choices that you have to make and then how you protect your roadmap from the natural tug of war between, you know, the bugs, fixes, tech debt versus building that next important step uh, for the company. Basically, the reason why I got hired at Trust and Will is to define a lot of that and create a really well-oiled product um, team and create new ways for engineering, design, product, legal. Uh, we're in a state planning startup, so obviously there's a really big legal component to it. How we all work together and how we all inform 
the way that we build our product. And then a question that I've always wanted to ask you, but I guess never had the chance to, is actually, how do you go from this idea of being an innovator and consistently thinking about what's next or what's in the future to going to a company that is planning the one thing that's for sure going to end, and that's our lives? (laughs) Yeah, that's such a great question. Yes, death is the only certain truth about life. We're getting deep here, people. (laughs) Yes. I I think what we're setting out to do with Trust and Well is to destigmatize it. We're trying to normalize planning for end of life and for what happens to your assets and, you know, your wishes. The reason why I get so excited about this is because today, fundamentally, estate planning all of the legal frameworks out there in the United States are effectively prone to misinterpretation as well as corruption. Effectively, you have a judge that knows nothing about you or your family or your situation, make decisions about your assets and your loved one's future. And that's, to me, just deeply challenging as a concept. So I have this very profound belief that technology can make that entire process more effective, more in line with your values. So it's, I think all of that, to me, is super ripe for true technology-first innovation. Yeah. And it's so interesting because this space to me, maybe it's just the people around me, but it seems to be like such a booming space. Um, As you know, we've had the amazing Liz Eddy from Lantern here. And it's just so interesting to see what sorts of perspectives you can bring to the space, which really seems so untouchable and, and such a taboo. So you've mentioned a ton of these really awesome different experiences and tools that you've picked up along consulting, your master's, city, trust and will, Fahrenheit, all these different places. But besides, you know, having a trajectory as impressive as yours or maybe joining Win or even doing a master's in innovation, what would you say is a toolbox or resource all aspiring innovators should aim to get in order to be able to get an innovation role or to succeed in an innovation role? Great question. The way I would explain it is brain elasticity. It's the ability for for you to hold an idea and see it from many different vantage points and recognize that a, a lot of those vantage points will be at one another sort of antithesis and there's going to be tension. And being able to just employ that and not get too hung up on or too in love with certain vantage points and being able to just like holistically assess them before taking a more informed path is, is I think a really key skill of an innovator. Another one that I find is incredibly important is growth mindset. The ability to just continuously espouse a learning mindset, wanting to get better, wanting to understand your weaknesses, grow your self-awareness, and continuously find ways to transform them into strengths. 
I mean, personally, I have to agree because I think like every week I take on a new online course or like read a new book. And I think it's true. I mean, coming from a place of privilege, both you and I, where we both had the opportunity to do a master's, I will say like with all the changes in innovation and ed tech and, and this industry, there are so many ways to accessibly learn. And of course, win is a really clear one to do so in the field of innovation. So let's dive deeper into when from my background information that I have gathered from <laughs> Alfia, from being in the org, um, something I learned was that Wynn's first trial run was a cheese and wine night at Fahrenheit 212 hosting a bunch of competitors and talking about the challenges of, you know, being a woman in innovation. So before that dinner, though, what was your aha moment beyond just seeing the very clear problem? What was the time that you decided, you know what, I want to do something about this? There was just this growing, maturing realization that I had around misogyny in the workplace. And they were little things that you pick up on. And at first you ask yourself, is it me or like are others mm -hmm. seeing it? And I think those little microaggressions or these little dynamics, you know, getting interrupted or getting your ideas appropriated or just like there not being enough airspace for you to even like bring your ideas to the table. I think it was just a maturing realization like those are those things are real. They have names There are unconscious biases that drive these behaviors. And it's not like a world that's not understood. And so we started at Fahrenheit and it, there was just a lot of agreement around the table uh, that this was, there were issues, um, not even to mention the fact that there were like five white male partners in the company <laughs> and there just wasn't female leadership. And, and we had a hypothesis, like, is it just Fahrenheit or is it industry-wide? And that's when we invited a bunch of competitors to our office and we had this amazing workshop where we came up essentially with almost a full year's worth of programs. We just started, uh, you know, bulleting out like, what are challenges that you see in your work as an innovator? What are some skills and tools that you need? And then Alfia, myself, and a few other folks like started delivering those programs on a monthly basis. And that was the start of it. And people kept coming and they kept telling other innovation sisters mm -hmm. that those programs are really valuable because they give you tangible tools, but they also create a really strong community, a sense of belonging. It just kind of kept going. We kept going month to month and uh, pretty quickly we realized that what we're actually doing was creating a co-opetition model for our organization, for for how our community showed up in the industry. Co-opetition means that people are inherently very generous, very open, very trusting, and probably come from a variety of backgrounds. So they bring a sense of diversity of perspective or background. And honestly, like those became our values. We just recognized what was the unique aspect of what we were unknowingly a little bit right by experimentation creating and then we just made that our values and I think that's to me that's probably one of like biggest insights about building community is that instead of creating values from the get-go allowing as your community 
forms itself and gels itself, extrapolating the things that make it unique and just making them your core values and making everything centered on those core values. Yes, and we'll dive in all about community. Um, we had Gina Bianchini, who is the founder and CEO of Mighty Networks, which is a platform we obviously run our community hub on. She spoke about this notion within community that a community is when every existing member benefits from an additional member. Would you say that applies to win? And how do you feel like that's different from the traditional education approach, which can really feel top down? Yeah, the fact that we build every program in collaboration with another firm or another agency meant that there were high levels of collaboration across inherent competitors. And that created, a, I think, a very unique breeding ground for women that perhaps previously would have thought of one another as competitors in the workplace, suddenly seeing one another as each other's best allies. And the thing that I, I think was a driving and continues to be the driving force for all of how wind continues to thrive is the notion that a rising tide lifts all ships. If we lift our, you know, sisters in other parts of the industry, in other roles, in other companies, if we share the wealth and the breadth of our knowledge with others, ultimately it helps us all succeed because it ensures that more women get into leadership positions. And by that, there are more role models for all the next generations of it, it, women innovation to espouse and aspire to. Uh, I think it's just like this really like karmic almost cycle. Yeah. And, and the way that you've described it and the several aspects that you described kind of remind me of all the different scaling strategies. One of my personal favorite podcasts is Masters of Scale by Reid Hoffman. And he talks about not just founding something, but you know, getting it from the five users to the next 5,000 and 50,000. Uh, but he also talks about the challenges with that. Are there any fears or downsides to scaling win or maybe improperly scaling win? Yes, uh, we at some point, maybe three years ago, expanded from our home market of New York City to London and San Francisco within, I think, a span of six months. And that was just sort of bananas. <laughs> There's no better way to put it. And, and, you know, I take full responsibility. I was just probably being a little too driven or a little too... Too much of a growth mindset. <laughs> maybe or just being too experimental, but I thought that we have something really special in New York City and why shouldn't we bring it to other innovation hubs, both of which we had very strong networks within, both of which felt like the right next markets to go into because it would further inform the diversity of our overall global community because of how different those markets are. New York is very centered on consulting. San Francisco mm -hmm. is very centered on startups and London is very centered on, on social innovation. And so just having the notion that like, let's just try it, right? It's safe to try. We just did it and it came with a lot of, a lot of new challenges. We had to be very clear in our communication 
what are we had to for the first time like fully formalize our values in order to make them the guiding principles for how the decentralized team should be putting together programs or making decisions about whatever it had to do with programs and running the community. So we had to define a lot of the things, a lot of the playbooks for how things are done, both operationally as well as strategically. And then we also had to grapple with the fact that those were very new teams that haven't ever worked before together. And then lastly, you know, big challenge with just how different those markets were and what their unique needs were and trying to reconcile the, you know, the snowflake London and the snowflake San Francisco and the snowflake New York City with an overarching direction that we were taking as a global brand. Because at the end of the day, at this point, we were trying to make sure that our brand is consistent across the board. And that's really hard to do as we've learned. Yeah. On on top of your day job as well, right? Like, I think this is the part that's always so striking because both you and Althea and even me and my role in global marketing, I talk about this the way I do about my real day job, right? Like I'm, I'm putting together decks and presentations and meetings and I'm managing people. I'm having check-ins with those people. But then you for a second stop and say, what is the catalyst for all these people to fall into these structures? I think it's very unique that there's 50-something women across our three hubs that do the work the way they would do their day job. I think that Mm -hmm. is incredible. What I've seen over those five years is that the women that do join WIN as team members and drive it forward see tremendous leaps in terms of their career opportunities as an outcome of it. More often than not, I think engaging with WIN in these roles that stretch their capabilities, it opens up their mind to the possibility that they can actually ask for those things back at their workplace. They can reach for that job promotion. They can reach for a career change. They can pivot into doing freelance because they see the power of this this community and this network at play really tangibly when they're part of the team. No, and I think you're spot on. And I think something else that you bring up is actually you you mentioned inherent biases. There's a lot of data that shows that when people are hiring or looking to promote men and women, they are looking for potential in men and they're looking for the proof and the putting for women. And, you know, we obviously want to change that construct in itself. But if for now, if we aren't able to change it, then what we are able to do is to give women the opportunity to prove it in an adjunct way. Uh, and they get to do that at WIN. So I think you're, you're really spot on with that. What is the biggest challenge for WIN or at WIN? The biggest challenge for WIN, I think, is the thing that also makes it so unique. A fully decentralized team of 50 plus volunteers is a huge challenge because if you think about what we're actually asking our incredible team members to do is to have two full-time jobs, sort of. We never actually ask for, you know, specific hours that they contribute to the work done at WIN, but we are asking them a lot. And I think We've grappled with this for a very long time. We don't think that's a sustainable model. Women already 
pay a penalty, um, especially in COVID, taking on the brunt of childcare, household work, like it, that is unfortunately still the reality. So in some ways, we're adding even more to their plate. And by that, you could say, you could argue that we're actually hurting them in the long term. I hope that's my like very deep hope and, and profound sense that that's not necessarily the case because I do see the advancement, the leaps, the career opportunities that our WIN team members get access to by doing the work and becoming part of that you know, core internal hub of the WIN world that our team really is. But I always worry, what cost does it come at? And I felt that cost myself, especially in the pandemic. Um, so it's something that to me is deeply challenging and just philosophically hard to reconcile because we aspire to put women into leadership positions, but aren't we putting too much burden on them to get there? Yeah, and your own role, as you mentioned, has changed at WIN. So, you know, I'd love to hear more about how you went about changing it and, and your own WIN journey and where you're at now. And then we'll wrap up about hearing what's next. In the early days, you know, it was just the joy of building something new and, and defining something undefined and seeing how far we can push it. And not being a mom and having all this extra time on my hands that I could invest in something, um, something that felt really meaningful to me. And then over time, you know, I mean, I, I've done everything like from defining the win brand to like literally hustling to like grow our community, spreading the word, spreading awareness and and then, you know, scaling that team and hiring our first board and really at some point recognizing that we're in such a great place with the tremendous support that we get that it just didn't feel like I, to be very honest, that I was the be all, you know, of the organization anymore for a good reason. And it, in many ways, coincided with me becoming way more busy in my personal life, in my professional life, taking some bigger risks and just feeling like I can probably step back and remove myself a little bit more from the day-to-day -day operations and still feel like I've left a mark on a huge community of women in our field. And so I've, you know, I've scaled back significantly versus what it was before. And it was a very hard decision driven by many different factors. It was the right decision. And I'm so excited to see when get to the next level with my very, very light touch. <laughs> What you're saying, I think, really brings out a few things that we've discussed in this conversation and actually what Alfia and I discussed because when I asked Alfia about her greatest challenge in relation to win, she said it's it's letting go, right? Because she really loves to be involved and keep it moving and, and she has that tough time stepping aside. And I think you represent a different side of that understanding for you and in your trajectory and in your life, when is the right time? But also, like you said, it's like, what is win supposed to be for each one of us? Like it, it, 
enabled your trajectory in many different ways. It gave you an opportunity to grow something of your own and, and now you're on to the next thing. So I think that's a really interesting take to win. So on that note, the question I always ask at the end of the podcast is where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now, and in this case, five years from now? So one month from now, I don't think anything changes. I think we're still going to be cooped up at home. But one year from now, I think Wynn has a really important role to play in how we think about women's role in the economy. So the way I see it, over the last nine months, we've lost over 2 million women from the workforce. We basically rolled back 30 years on progress in gender equity in the workplace. That's crazy and unacceptable. Totally. So what's next for Win over the next year is really figuring out how do we become a platform for placing women at the center of economic growth? And to me, that means that women have to get access, tools, support uh, in the form of expertise, know-how from our community in order to build their own businesses. Only 2% of VC capital goes to women. Again, that's unacceptable. That's just not right. And it becomes systemic. Absolutely. And so I would wish that over the next year, we figure out how do we help change that? And then five years from now, I would hope that with that shift in how we think about the role of our community and the platform we've built, that there are founders, female founders that come out of our programs, our support structure who have built incredible businesses because of the help, expertise, know-how they were able to gain from the WIN platform. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your incredibly insightful perspective, Maria. Thank you so much for having me, Zoya. This was such a pleasure, and I've really enjoyed working with you in so many different capacities. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.